Welcome to another very special episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. I keep surrounding myself with these brave, powerful women, and I couldn't be more excited about it. And I have another one of those women today on the show. My guest today is Callie Werner. And Callie checks just about every box we care about on The Examined Athlete. She is an elite-level marathoner. I want each and every one of you to go out and send her support and encouragement on Instagram as she works towards the 2024 Olympic Trials. She is the author of a children's book called Anxious Annie. It's available on Amazon. Please go check it out. And she's also a family and behavioral therapist. And while Callie clearly excelled on the track and on the road, she also has struggled with obsessive-compulsive disorder throughout her entire life, which in college became unmanageable and led to her seeking professional help. She shares that story in detail on today's episode and explains how that experience led her to dedicate her professional life to helping others that deal with similar struggles. We get into things like confidence on today's episode, we talk fear, we talk pain, we talk the positives and the negatives of success when you're living with an anxiety disorder, we talk cognitive behavioral therapy, what is it and how does she use it, and she gives us some advice for those of us that are family members and have loved ones that may be struggling with mental health, which I definitely fall into that category. Callie, I couldn't be more impressed with you. You have a big fan in me, and very soon two young girls will be looking up to you and will also be fans because I have ordered Ancient Annie and can't wait to sit down and read it with my daughters and tell them your story. Ladies and gentlemen, the powerful Callie Warner. Callie, well, thanks for joining me. So you're a family and behavioral therapist, but you have, I guess, the passion for studying athletes and high achievers. Is that correct? That's correct. And thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. And you're also an elite level marathoner, which is really exciting. So you check all the boxes for what we're trying to do here. And we're going to spend the majority of your time, our time on OCD and I'm so grateful you're going to share your experience with OCD. But before that, I want to get into your athletic journey a little bit. So tell me where you grew up. Tell me where you developed this run for running in particular. So I I grew up in Willis, Texas, went to school in Willis, and I played all of the sports until probably my sophomore year of high school. I thought I wanted to go to college to be a volleyball player. So loved volleyball, still love volleyball to this day, just realized if I wanted a scholarship, it wasn't going to happen for me there. Running was something that I actually didn't even sign up to do in high school, but the high school coach, because Willis is a smaller town, or was at the time, it's growing now, he was also the PE coach for the elementary school nearby. So he was my PE coach in second grade, and I had won some of the little turkey trots that we did there um, and fun runs. And so when I didn't sign up for his cross-country class in high school, he actually called our house and said, why is Callie not in my class? And it was challenging because I guess a good problem to have, but I was already in the volleyball class. And so he said, well, work with it. And 
I did cross country after school, volleyball in the morning. And then once we found that the success would be in cross country, I devoted my junior and senior year to that and started to have more success in in running, especially once I started qualifying and um, competed at state. So I think I received gold one year. I've, I've received the different colors. So bronze, silver, gold. And my senior year was the best year for all of those and got a scholarship to Rice and did that. Decided I wanted to keep running after I graduated and trained for a couple of marathons and competed in the Olympic trials in 2020. And now I think I want to go for it one more time. Well, we're going to talk about that because I'm on the Cali for Paris bandwagon now <laughs> after going down this rabbit hole here. But it sounds like you were talented from a fairly young age in running and rewarded at a fairly, fairly young age. An athletic talent like that typically builds self-confidence. I know it did in me. And I know from your work, I read some of your work, that self-confidence, self-efficacy helps to combat anxiety. So given your story, I wonder, did your talent have the same confidence building effect that it did on others or did on me? Right. I th- I think that's a great question. And I think that's where we see differences in individuals. Like if you have the genetic component of an anxiety disorder, the confidence seems to take secondhand versus being able to utilize that confidence. So for me, for example, if I would win a race, you would think, oh, I, I'm really fast. I, I'll do really well at this next race. But instead it was oh my goodness, now there's more pressure on me and now I have to do better the next time or I'm going to let people down. And so it kind of had the opposite effect on me. And until I worked on my own therapy, cognitive restructuring, cognitive behavioral therapy, I wasn't able to take that approach with sport that is much healthier of building confidence, believing in yourself. But instead, I was every level of success led to a little bit more pressure, if that so, makes sense. Yeah. So it always kind of played second banana to your anxiety. So when coaches call and say, I want Callie on the on the track team and Clearly, when you're winning state championships, people are complimenting you and telling you about this bright light they see in you. But every time that happens, are you coming up with an excuse why that's not real or something like that? Yeah, I I remember all through high school, a friend might say, Callie, do you have a race today? And I I would say, yeah. Um, And they'd say, well, what race is it? And I'd start talking about it and they'd cut me off and they'd say, oh, you're going to win. You know, for for most people, I think that can affect you in a positive way. Oh, great. They believe in me. And for me, I was like, oh, my goodness, they think I'm going to win. And so I better win or else they're going to be like, what happened to Callie? And if I didn't have anxiety, I don't think that'd be a big deal. I'd I'd just think, ah, well, they, they think what they think. No big deal. But for me, I took that on and wore it all day long until the race came up. Luckily, the anxiety wasn't bad enough at that point in high school that I was able to kind of white knuckle it through until college. That's when. And we'll get into that, but right. it sounds like it triggered a little imposter syndrome in you. Definitely imposter yeah. syndrome. And and I think I was so frustrated with the type of anxiety I would have. Like the higher stakes the race, the more I'd be crying the night before trying to fall asleep. Couldn't fall asleep because of the anxiety. And so I hit all that really well in high school because of the stigma of mental health at that time. Of course, we still have that stigma, but I think it was a bit more extreme than of not wanting people to think I was crazy, wanting to appear like I had it all together, really cared about my self-image to a fault. Yeah, it just became debilitating. <laughs> yeah, I'm someone who cares about my self-image way too much, but that's why I'm having these conversations to work on that. Before we get deeper into that, 
let's talk marathons a bit because I've been down this rabbit hole, probably Googling you more than you'd be comfortable with. But <laughs> I understand that you're 13 minutes off an Olympic pace, which is let's call it 20 seconds a mile. That's not easy in my mind. I don't know anything about running marathons, but it seems achievable. So again, I'm on the Cali bandwagon for Paris 2024. We're on the marathon route in Houston. We're going to be cheering for you (laughs) in January for sure. Does it feel like it's within reach? It's a good question. And I I love the support and the the belief in myself. And I don't say this to give myself some type of cushion because, oh my goodness, if, if I could qualify for the Olympics, yeah, that would be the dream. And I wouldn't turn that down at all. I think, again, the imposter syndrome comes up for me of, well, I'm working full time, I'm in a PhD program, and I'm seeing patients on the side. And so in my mind, I'm like, how can I do that when the people that are qualifying for the Olympics, their full time job is running. And so my brain automatically kind of shuts off and says, well, you can train hard, and you can get to the trials, and you can have new personal records, but you can't you can't make it to the Olympics. And of course, I don't want to say that. And I need to work on that mindset and restructuring. But I think I'm at a place now where I will be at peace, like either way, if if I get close, or if I don't, I, I'll be excited and at peace because I'm able to run now. And I know we'll get into this soon, but like much more freely than I was able to before because of all the mental health strains that well, took just place. from a technical aspect, put your runner expertise hat on. How difficult is overcoming 10 to 13 minutes in a marathon over 26.2 miles? Is that a monumental goal over the next few years? Or is that something that if you were really focused on it, it's it's a potential? There's a lot of variables, right? So like if you were starting to train now and building a a base, I could definitely shave some time off. And, And the reality is I've only run three marathons. So I've done Houston twice and then the trials. And so I think there is a lot of room for improvement for me. But, you know, one big piece is most high class marathoners, I don't know of that do that well off of 60 miles a week, which is about I do 60 to 70 miles at my higher training because that's what my schedule can handle right now. So I do think if I could devote a bit more time and maybe, you know, at a a semester that life is a little bit easier or a season in my life where life is a little bit easier, I could definitely do that. And do I think that that would improve my times? Absolutely. Do I think that it would improve it by 15 minutes? I guess it depends on how much of a base I can build. Okay. Well, you're going to have some cheers here on University Boulevard (laughs) in January. So six minutes a mile for 26.2 miles, I imagine is wildly uncomfortable for a significant amount of time, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're in a pretty comfortable pace for most of the marathon. Are you wildly uncomfortable for long periods of time? And if so, how do you frame pain in your mind in the middle of a marathon where maybe you have an hour of running left or 30 minutes of running left? What's your strategy to overcome pain? How do you think about pain? Something my coach told me in high school that I I still take with me to this day is the pain is temporary. And and when I say temporary, I mean, it it lasts for minutes before you get some relief. So it's not like, I mean, unless, you know, something's going wrong physically, or, or you really just didn't get in the training that you needed to, to run the pace that you're running, the pain will come and go throughout the race. And so if I'm feeling that pain or having a negative thought, I can say, okay, this will last for a few minutes, but then I'm going to, I'm going to get a lift and I'm going to feel a little bit better. And then when you get to that place, 
towards the end of the marathon when your legs are heavy and you are ready to be done. Okay, but you're almost done. You made it this far. And so you have that to to look forward to. So I think that it's really helpful to just say, okay, this is temporary. You're, you're going to get a second wind here in a moment. Or one my favorite quote was given to me by a basketball coach when I was in high school, and it was the pain of discipline is so much better than the pain of regret. And I, I think there would be controversy on that quote, but for me, it really helps of like, okay, I, I want to be able to say at the end of this race, I gave it my all because it would be so much worse to say, oh, it was only 30 seconds that you didn't qualify by. You you had that 30 seconds in you. Absolutely. Well, I think what's difficult for me to grasp as someone who never runs more than three or four miles is you're probably never feeling like I'm feeling if I'm really pushing myself. Let's jump into OCD for a while, which is your expertise and where we'll spend the majority of our time. But before we get to your personal journey with OCD and anxiety, I think it's helpful to start with defining some terms. So could you just tell us in a broad sense what OCD is? And it may be helpful to also tell us what OCD is not, because I know that it can be difficult to delineate between abnormal and normal. Sure. So OCD is known as obsessive compulsive disorder. And the stigma, I think, around what OCD is, is that you'll hear people say, oh, well, my desk, it has to be this way. It's so tidy or I don't function well. Like I just have to have it this way or I'm so OCD. And and we know that OCD is not really used as an adjective. What people are explaining when they say that is more like type A personality. When we look at OCD, there's actually eight different subtypes that are equally as common as what some people describe as just right OCD. So when we we talk about just right OCD, that is where you'll see some of the ordering and arranging and having to keep things perfectly. But the difference between either perfectionism or type A personality is that person likes to have things that way. They function better that way. It brings them a sense of, of joy to have let's say everything in the fridge, the labels facing them versus somebody with OCD, specifically just right OCD, they feel like if one of those labels is off, their loved one is going to die. They don't want to have that label facing the wrong way, but they feel like they have to or else something terrible is going to happen. So those are are the things I think that people get mixed up the most, but I can touch on the other subtypes that are actually equally as common that most people don't know about because they're considered a bit more taboo. So is what you're saying, it's not the act itself, it's how you treat the act mentally. Is that? Right, okay. right. So someone with OCD has an obsessive thought, this thought that if I don't do this or if I have this intrusive thought, something bad is going to happen if I don't do this compulsion. So there's a thought and then there's an action to relieve the anxiety from that thought. It's the action combined with the anxiety. It's the anxiety behind the, the action that's right. the problem. Okay. Is there such thing as a typical trigger for OCD? I imagine like everything in life, it's heritable to some extent, but it also seems like outside influences could be just as causal. We do know that there is a genetic component with OCD, but like just like with any other diagnosis, general life stressors. So if somebody has that genetic makeup, a big move can offset the OCD or transitioning from high school to college. You can see this onset of OCD. And I don't think like a, like someone might say, well, a traumatic event caused me to have OCD when the reality is like, no, they, they would probably still have OCD if some other life event happened. But sure, the traumatic event was stressful. So it did onset the OCD symptoms. And I 
can't tell you the, the amount of times I've had a patient in my office say, well, if I just wouldn't have stepped on that Band-Aid, I wouldn't have had fears of contamination OCD. Or if I just wouldn't have saw that movie where this really triggering thing happened, I wouldn't have OCD. And, and I have to explain to them, no, if, if it wasn't that, it would be something else a little bit later. But to answer your question in, in a shorter sense is that life stressors do cause the symptoms to kind of onset, if that makes sense. Absolutely. But if there's not some sort of underlying issue, those stressors may not affect you. I guess what's difficult or what's stressing to one person may not be to others. So what may trigger you may never trigger me in a million years. Right. So to give a little bit more of an example, so one of the subtypes of OCD is there's sexual intrusive thoughts and there's harm intrusive thoughts. And again, these are equally as common as contamination OCD, which is one that most people know of where people wash their hands excessively or take really long ritualistic showers. But sexual intrusive thoughts could be, or harm intrusive thoughts could be like an example of someone cutting an onion in the kitchen and their loved one walks into the kitchen and this individual with OCD has an intrusive thought of what if I stab my loved one? Like it's a fleeting thought that passes through their head, but because they have the genetic makeup of OCD, their brain is going to think, why did I have that thought? Does that mean that I would actually do something like this? And then they start obsessing about it. So then they start avoiding sharp objects. Then they start avoiding knives or they start avoiding that loved one. When in reality, we actually all have random, bizarre thoughts like that that we can't I was about to say, I've had those thoughts, maybe being more honest than I should, of going like, (laughs) well, I think my thoughts have been like, it is possible for me to kill everyone in this room. Or or when you're on the edge of a cliff at the Grand Canyon, you're going, oh gosh, why am I thinking about jumping off? But the difference is the rumination, the anxiety that accompanies that. Right. You, You hit it spot on. Those were perfect examples. For the individual with... OCD, the thought is a lot more sticky. So they want to put reasoning to why they had this fleeting thought, whereas somebody without OCD, they probably don't even notice the thought or they they think, oh, that was a a weird thought. And then they forget about it and keep answering emails or texting or doing what they were doing. Let's get into your personal journey with OCD. Where did your journey start and how has it evolved over the years? It started when I was four. This is kind of a symptom that I don't even remember, but what I hear from my parents. I was four years old when my parents told me I would walk around the house bopping my nose, just tapping my nose over and over and saying, sorry, God, sorry, God, sorry, God. What you're hearing is known as a subtype of OCD called scrupulosity, which is the religious-based OCD fear where people will either like excessively pray or need to repeat Bible verses over and over. They might be rereading the Bible over and over or depending on their religious preference. Let's say they practice a, a faith where they're not supposed to eat pork. And so they will over-examine the ingredients and make sure that there isn't any pork in them. And it just becomes debilitating. Their world gets really small and OCD's world gets really big. I had a lot of scrupulosity at that point in my life. And the reason I was bopping my nose like that is because I thought that if I did something wrong or if I possibly told a lie at some point in the day, God was going to let my nose grow like Pinocchio. And so that was the obsessive fear, right? God might be mad at me. And then the compulsion that I did was hitting my nose and saying, sorry, God, sorry, God, so that he wouldn't let my nose grow like Pinocchio. That was kind of the first signs of OCD that we remember. And then throughout my life, it transitioned. So I will say some people experience one subtype of OCD their whole life, like contamination. They might just have contamination OCD their whole life. But for me and for most individuals, I would say it morphs from one subtype to the next to the next. And so 
I had some contamination fears, meaning as a kid, I remember telling my mom, I don't think I wash my hands well enough. What if I touch your food? Will you get sick and die? Or I would also over-apologize a lot, fear that I could have offended somebody. And so I, I would say sorry, and they their response would be, well, why are you saying sorry? I don't understand why you're saying sorry. So it was a lot of that. And during that time of my life, OCD would wax and wane. So like for my family, we moved quite a few times. And anytime we would move, my parents would just say, Callie, you got really weird at that point. And just to clarify, um, we did not know that I had OCD yet. And so to them, it was just Callie's quirky and, and we don't understand why. So then as I got older and started getting success in running, a lot of just right symptoms happened around my running. We, we say, tend to say that OCD often latches onto what you value. And I valued success. I valued my sport. And I, I valued wanting to get a really good education and getting a scholarship. So it totally made sense that OCD would latch onto running for me. So I would do things like before a big race, tie and retie my shoes over and over until I got this just right feeling because I felt like if I didn't get that feeling, I wouldn't win the race. And it got so bad to a point where my high school coach was having to tie my shoes so that I could get to the starting line on time. As I transitioned to college, I actually got injured. Let me stop you right oh, yeah. there. Did at any point in high school, did a coach or a mentor jump in and say, Callie, this is odd that I'm having to tie your shoes? Or was it, again, just looked at as, as quirky? You know, it was really just looked at as as quirky. Yeah. Like, Callie, don't don't do that. Or um, like sometimes I would round my runs off. My coach would say, "Well, why are you still running? Like the workout's over." And I'd say, "Because I'm at three point nine. I need to get to four miles instead of three point nine. And so he would say, "Callie, stop that." Yeah. Or well, I think like what's that. so hard about it, and I have some questions later around this, is when you talk about religion, I have a complicated relationship with religion because I had intrusive thoughts and thought that this was not Christian and dealt with that in my own way. I don't like putting my alarm clock on odd numbers. You know, there's all these things, but I think it's helpful to remind our listeners and myself that it's that, but combined with the obsession and the compulsion, it's not having the thought. We all have those thoughts. Those are normal. It's what comes after. Yeah. And if you look at the OCD symptom checklist, it's the the Y box symptom checklist. It's available online for anyone to look at. It goes over 50 different things that can be classified as OCD. And I would say the majority of us without a diagnosis experience one or two of those symptoms. It's when this becomes a pretty prominent part of your day, when it takes more than an hour out of your day that you're engaging in this obsessive thought or compulsion. Um, so yeah, people might hear this podcast and say, well, I do that. But if, if you're just doing that, so for example, there's a form of OCD where um, you check for security, like to make sure that nothing bad will happen. So someone might double check their lock before they go to bed every night to make sure the lock on the front door is locked. And if that's all they do for the next five years, then they probably don't have OCD. But if they start off double checking that lock and then maybe they have to start triple checking it and then maybe they find that they're checking the stove too to make sure that the stove off stove is off. OK, well, we've had one thing that's turned into a much bigger thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a former baseball player, so we're known for our rituals. And I know former baseball players that would fight you if you broke up their ritual. But I think we're talking about something that's more common than what we're getting into. And I think it's important to delineate and explain the difference. So get into college a bit. What was the behavior, the feeling, the action that convinced you or convinced your family that 
we need to address this professionally. Right. So when I got to college, I was injured. So my OCD my freshman year actually decreased quite a bit because I wasn't racing. And for me, racing was a big trigger at the time because I hadn't gotten treatment for my OCD. And so freshman year was pretty good in regards to OCD. My sophomore year, I had this uh, the stress fracture that I had healed and I started racing again. And as soon as I qualified to go to nationals, the OCD started to pick up again. And at that point, it hadn't gotten bad enough because college running was still pretty new to me. But it wasn't until the next time around that I was trying to qualify to go to nationals for the second time. And I remember I was actually reading a book for psychology in a psychology class that I was taking at Rice. And I... I started reading about anxiety, and for some reason, it just completely triggered me. So I started having all these obsessive thoughts of, do I have anxiety? And then, of course, I had to learn about other diagnoses like schizophrenia. And so then I started asking myself very hypochondriasis <laughs> type of thoughts, which is is classified as kind of a subtype of, of OCD, this health anxiety. I'm going to expose myself. Depi- define that word. Hypo what? Chondriasis. Yeah, define that. So it's when you fear that you have all these symptoms, like like if you start self-diagnosing yourself or you start going to doctor's appointments over and over to make sure that there's not something wrong with you or researching symptoms online. It's also health anxiety is is kind of the big component. And so I remember fearing, what if I have schizophrenia? And so I would be walking to class at this point and see a leaf fall from a tree. And then I would be so triggered, just flooded with anxiety and start asking myself, did I really see that leaf fall from the tree? And then I would stand there and stare to see like if there really was a leaf on the ground and it it became pretty debilitating. And then of course, what came with that was a very similar example that you gave earlier when you were standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon I started having these thoughts of, well, if I do have this mental diagnosis, what if I'm going to harm myself? And so I remember I would take some vitamins for like iron and a couple of other things. And I I would think, what if I accidentally take, not accidentally, but purposely take this whole bottle of, of medication? So I would call my mom when I was about to take these vitamins. And I think I want to say it was like a, an acne medication, something like that. And and I would say, hey, can you stay on the phone with me while I take this because I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to overdose. So that was kind of the first sign that my family got that they, they were like, what? I, I don't understand. And, and then they dug into it a bit more and they said, Callie, no, this is like an anxiety thing. You're not because they would ask, do you, do you want to do something like that? And I'd say, well, I don't think so, because I was so afraid that, well, what if that with OCD, a lot of the thoughts that come up are, well, what if I wanted to do this? And there's this loophole that it gets to. And so I would do things like I had a a class in the Jones School of Business and and the staircase kind of wraps around there. And so I remember slapping myself against the wall to go up these stairs to get to that class because I would have that intrusive thought of jumping off the staircase. The thoughts got so bad that I didn't want to be by myself anymore because I was so afraid. What if I engaged in some type of self-harm because I have some unknown mental health diagnosis and I I ended up being afraid to use any restrooms at the school because I was afraid no one else would be in there. And so I would wait all day long until I got home off campus to use the bathroom. And it just it got pretty terrible that when I went home for Christmas break to stay with my family, they actually saw how bad it was. And so that was when they said, we've got to do something finally got into exposure response prevention therapist, which is kind of the gold standard of treatment for OCD. 
And it was life-changing for me so much so that I changed my own career path to, to be a provider. When I was researching you and even hearing you talk now, the use of the word fear seems to be prevalent when you're describing OCD. You're fearful of taking medication. You're fearful of a diagnosis, specifically schizophrenia. You're fearful of talking about your problems, of what others may think. It appears to me that fear could be a roadblock in the way of getting better for many. Talk about the role fear played in your experience and then as a professional now, shed some light on the relationship between fear and seeking help. Yeah, well, what was interesting is some of these experiences that I was having in college popped up in my life as a kid, um, as a teenager, but they just weren't quite as severe because I hadn't latched onto them as much. So as a kid and as a teenager, I didn't speak up about those symptoms because I was afraid that if someone heard this, they would think I was crazy or I, I would be locked up or these were just things that like you don't share. And so that fear played a huge part. And again, a lot of people with OCD or any type of anxiety disorders are people pleasers. I wanted to be that people pleaser that showed myself as there's nothing wrong with me. Um, and so that was a huge piece that took away from my ability to get treatment earlier as well. And then two, even now, OCD is not normalized, right? Like I was saying earlier, people know about contamination OCD, but if you don't fit in the contamination OCD or just right OCD box, then it's really scary to talk about the other things because people don't know that that's OCD as well. They get it confused with, you know, sexual intrusive thoughts versus someone that that that's a pedophile, right? Like they're very different. Um, like if you're addicted to pornography or something, is that OCD? If you're addicted to pornography or if you are, so it, it can be. So let's say there is sexual ori orientation OCD. So let's say somebody that is straight, they might be afraid that they could be gay and that they're married, they have kids, and then they have this obsessive fear that, well, I was talking to my friend the other day and I, I think I found that they were attractive. Well, why did I have that thought? What does that mean? It is my whole life a lie? And then they start dwelling on it and, and obsessing about it versus, you know, somebody that, that actually is gay, there's no anxiety around that. So when we look at somebody that, that for example, is a pedophile, there's not this debilitating anxiety versus somebody that has a sexual intrusive thought, like postpartum OCD. A lot of women struggle with this. And so they might be changing their baby's diaper and have this intrusive thought of, did I touch my baby inappropriately? And, and I know this is an uncomfortable subject for people to listen to, but it is very common. They have this fear, this anxiety. They stop changing their baby's diaper. Maybe they make their loved one change it. They don't want to hold their baby because they think that they are a pedophile. But really the difference is this debilitating anxiety that you want nothing to do with. And when we, when we say don't think about it, right? So like someone might tell somebody with OCD, don't think about that. Just stop thinking about it. Well, if you tell someone, don't think of a white elephant, don't think of a white elephant, don't think of a white elephant – that thought is just going to come back 10 times stronger. And so what happens is this individual tries to push that thought away, wants nothing to do with it, but then it starts to take over their whole life. Well, and to my original point, listening to you is a lot of these things, pedophilia or addicted to pornography or scared you're touching your child wrong, there's fear and there's shame, which mm -hmm. is going to put up a block from going to seek help. Right. In the middle of your, the worst of... I don't know if I'm using the right term, an episode, your mm -hmm. worst anxiety. Are you completely convinced that what you're imagining is real or 
is there some rational voice inside you that knows this is the OCD? And the reason I'm asking is because one of the feelings that beats me up often, and I'm not comparing what I've dealt with to what you've dealt with, but is the feeling that I can't get rid of this emotion, even though I'm completely aware it's irrational and ridiculous. So I guess what I'm wondering is, are you dealing with the obsessive behavior, but also beating yourself up for not overcoming it? Or are you completely convinced that it's real when you're in the middle of it? So for me, I always had high insight with OCD is how we describe it, but it's not that way for everybody. So the majority of people, I would say, though, that struggle with OCD, there is this part, there, this rational brain that's picking up and saying, no, this is this is irrational. Like, why are you thinking this? This doesn't make any sense. But you explained it perfectly. The feeling is what takes over, right? When your feeling is is that difficult to manage, the, this high, high anxiety that you're struggling with, it wins every time. And so if you are sitting at a restaurant and you have this panic about some type of thought, it's going to be pretty challenging for you to do something as simple as picking what you want to order off the menu at the restaurant. So imagine somebody that's struggling with a really scary thought to them of, well, am I am I going to jump off of this railing because I, I've what if I want to harm myself? For them, that anxiety, they're in fight or flight mode for sure. For them to be able to use that rational brain is very difficult for them to do until that anxiety comes down enough for them to be able to say, oh yeah, this is an OCD thing and now I can move forward. And that's where treatment comes into play to get them to a point where their anxiety can come down just enough for them to do exposures of walking up that staircase closer to the edge of the stairs and and kind of proving to that part of their brain that this is an OCD thing long term. I think that's interesting, but I wasn't even speaking to using your rational brain to overcome the obsession. I was curious if you were compounding it by beating yourself up. Mm. So I'll give you an example. So I always have a feeling of being an underachiever. I've been successful financially. I have a great wife, great kids, great friends, great family, but I always feel like an underachiever. What beats me up is not the feeling of being an underachiever. I can deal with that. It's this feeling of like you are completely ungrateful or out of touch or not aware. So I'm beating myself up. So I was wondering if you had that on top of it going snap out of it or, you know, are you beating yourself up or is that once you're in that place, you're beyond that? No, definitely. That was a huge part of it. So I I had a loved one that I confided in quite a bit during this really difficult time of my life. And again, before I received the diagnosis and they, they were not a clinician, so they didn't know what to say in those moments, but they did say quite a few of the wrong things. <laughs> and, and looking back, we, we both know that they did. But again, if hindsight's twenty twenty, if we would have known, we both would have responded differently. And so I remember them saying things to this day that still stick with me as, ugh, that was not the right thing to say. So example could be, I was really triggered and, and they would say, Callie, snap out of it. And I tell my patients all the time, hey, if, if you could snap out of it, you would, right? It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. And then another thing that was very painful for me to hear at that time was, Callie, there's people starving on the other side of the world and you can't get out of your head enough to just like have a conversation with somebody. And and that still echoed in, echoes in my head sometimes now when I get triggered of, why, Callie, why don't you just snap out of it? There's people that are struggling with a lot more than you are. And those are the types of things that I would just beat myself up with over and over again because I, I couldn't just turn it off. I couldn't be mentally tough enough. 
And of course, now today, I know, okay, this is a chemical imbalance. This is something that I did not choose to have. And this is the phase of life that I'm in. And so I have to be kind to myself in order to get better. I have to have this self-compassion. And I also have to know that I did not choose this. My loved one will also own up and say the same things that because we both know this now and it wasn't it wasn't a choice that I was making to be miserable. That that was another thing that was told to me. I think you want to be miserable because they would give me reassurance, which is a type of compulsion. So if let's say I had this fear that I said something to offend somebody. So I would call this loved one and I would say, hey, did I do something to offend that person? You were there. Did you see that? And they would say, oh, no, not at all. They didn't think anything. And so I'd say, oh, okay, thank goodness. And and that was the compulsion, right? So I, I was really anxious. They gave me the reassurance. It got better. But the only problem with reassurance is just spins you right back into that cycle the next time you have an intrusive thought or the next time something triggers you. So they'd give me the reassurance and then I'd call them back another 10 minutes because I'd have another thought. Hey, did I offend someone at this point? And then their response would be, oh my goodness, Callie, I, I think you like to be miserable. That was really painful for me to hear too because that was the last thing that I wanted, right? I didn't, they, when OCD is that strong, the, the drive to do the compulsion so that you feel better is so overpowering. You don't want to be bugging this person. Again, if you have high insight, you know that calling them is the last thing that you want to do, but you just feel like you have no other choice in order to feel a little bit better. I, I think that's a beautiful message to be kind to yourself. No matter what position you're in, your feelings, your emotions are your feelings and your emotions. And that's something I've struggled with. But be kind to yourself and realize that nothing else matters at that point, but dealing with that feeling. Well, I want to get into family with you because I was curious on how your family responded. We have mental health issues in our family. And though I completely understand that I'm oftentimes asking this individual to throw a fastball with a broken arm, I can't help it. And I still ask for a fastball and I still get frustrated when this person can't throw a fastball and I lose my patience. And I say things probably like your family members said to you, it can be really stressful, even though, like we just talked about, you're completely aware of what's going on, but it's difficult. What is your advice for families that are dealing with a loved one with mental health issues? The one thing I am really grateful about is the fact that I've done a lot of family therapy for my patients. And so what I get to see is both sides of of the spectrum. I get to see the individual struggling with the family members giving them these messages, but I also see the family members trying to, to treat them. And just like the individual with OCD, the family member also has a lot of guilt and shame that they're carrying, right? Like, what did I do? One of the common stigmas is what did I do to make my loved one feel this way? What did I like? Why is this happening? I must have done something especially wrong. parents with yeah, children, especially yeah. parents. And so what I tell those parents or or those loved ones is I know that you want them to feel better, right? Like I know if you could take this pain away from them in a second, you would. And I also know that you're not a trained OCD clinician. So of course you've done whatever it is that you've done to make them either feel better in the moment or to try to get them to move forward because you didn't have the the evidence-based skills. So everyone at that time was just surviving. And I think they need to hear that. The patient needs to hear that because then it gives you this level of empathy to meet them where they're at. When the parents, maybe they feel guilty because they've 
helped the patient do these compulsions for such a long time in their life and now they're they're pretty debilitated because they've been feeding the OCD. Well, okay, that totally makes sense that you would do that, right? You see your loved one struggling. They're in this state of high anxiety. You want to take the anxiety away. And you don't realize, unless you have been trained in OCD, that this anxiety is only going to go away temporarily and then you're going to need that compulsion to a new extent the next time around. The biggest advice is help the patient by not feeding the anxiety as best as you can, but also make sure that that you're also helping yourself by just saying, okay, like that was something that I didn't know then that I know not now. So how am I going to respond differently this time? Well, it sounds like, again, give yourself some grace and be kind to yourself again, because I will say that there is shame around that and not dealing with a person who's struggling like you should or not giving them the patience they deserve. But the reality is, is unless you've been in a family like that, it's very, very difficult. And I imagine even as a therapist, you probably encounter some frustrations with patients. Is that true? I mean, where oh, you're, sure. it, you're human, right? Right. Yeah. I, I remember I was actually at a place where I was doing really well with my OCD and I, I you know, I'd have an obsessive thought here or there, but it, it was pretty well managed. And so I kind of lost the memories of what it was like to really, really struggle like I had at a different point in my life. If I had patients asking me constant reassurance questions all day or sending me emails of, of needing some type of reassurance, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I, I need I need some time. Like, don't they understand I have a million things going on? And then sure enough, I get triggered a week later and my OCD amps up and I feel like I need reassurance from someone and I'm like, oh yeah, this is how it is. I, I remember. And it was very humbling for me at that point. But I, I also want to say that I tell patients and family members that the therapy isn't just for the patient, it's for the whole family. So for exposure response prevention specifically, when we do ERP is, is what it's short for, we are asking patients to face fears that they've avoided for such a long time, right? A little bit at a time. So for me, it was that staircase. I would smack myself against the wall and make sure that I was avoiding the edge of the staircase at all costs. So maybe the first time I do the exposure, I'm going to the middle of the staircase and I, I ease my way up to the harder exposures. But it's also an exposure for family not to give in to that immediate reassurance because they they have to see their loved one struggling a bit more, right? They can't immediately jump to the rescue or they have to be more patient instead of immediately responding out of frustration. And so it's difficult for both sides. Well, let's talk about ERP and CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, a bit. I've spent some time researching CBT and I'm really fascinated with it. And the reason because it seems like the entire population could benefit from its core tenets, which is what I'm hearing you say. It seems like CBT is just a good intellectual habit to be in. And the reason I thought that is because it seems very closely related to meditation, which is for me about separating stimulus from response, which is what you're saying to me. So the CBT could help the patient, but it could probably also help the family to say, separate that stimulus, which is your family member acting out from your response. Is, do you feel like CBT is something that everyone should be thinking about? I personally, taking my therapist hat off for a second, I do. I think ERP is a little bit more specified for individuals that maybe struggle with avoidance or a specific phobia or OCD, but CBT is cognitive restructuring and 
I don't know a single person that isn't hard on harder on themselves than they are on others. And so to me, CBT definitely helps with that too, whether it be imposter syndrome that you're struggling with, whether it be just being really hard on yourself or giving negative thoughts to yourself constantly of you're not good enough, you're a failure, you can't do this, you're in way over your head. All of CBT is finding the evidence for and evidence against, and it's proving that the evidence for is really irrational, right? It's proving that the evidence for is much less than the evidence against. And so I I always tell patients and and just close friends, don't live in the 1%, right? If there's a 1% chance that you could, for example, go to the grocery store and get in a car accident, because that is a chance, right? But if you're driving to the grocery store and thinking about oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Like, do I make, do I have my will all set up for this? If I pass away on my way to this grocery store, is everybody taking care of? That's going to be completely debilitating and no one should live their life like that. You need to live in the 99% of what am I going to get when I get to the grocery store? What do I need to do? Like, do we have enough eggs? Do we have enough milk? Those are the types of things you should be thinking about. And so why not take that mythology um, when you're thinking about these types of things in your everyday life of how you think of yourself. And so that's a lot of what CBT touches on. You know what was jumping out to me is how about in partisan politics? If we removed the binary thinking and the emotional reasoning and the catastrophizing, all these cognitive distortions that you address in CBT, as I'm researching them, preparing for this, I'm going gosh, I think politicians could benefit from this. I think we all could benefit from this because every day we warp our reality by reacting to emotions and not thinking logically or not thinking critically. I just, I felt like reading it that the world would be a better place if everyone was doing a little CBT and I've kind of taken it on myself to practice this a little bit. Think about when you're encountering a cognitive distortion and separate that stimulus from response and kind of pull yourself back. So let me say, these are two of your quotes. You say you learn to challenge your fears and you learn to ride out your anxiety. Tell me what that means. Is that CBT? What does it mean to ride out anxiety or challenge your fears? So when you ride out anxiety, if you're doing a compulsion, so let's say I need to go, like I'm laying in bed and I think, oh my goodness, I left the stove on. What if I left the stove on? What if I left the front door unlocked? And then I give into that anxiety by going to check a fourth time, right? That's not me writing out the anxiety. That's giving the anxiety exactly what it wants. To write out the anxiety is to live in that uncertainty zone, to live in the 99% instead of the 1%. So I'm writing it out until that anxiety doesn't control me anymore. That's kind of what that means. And then the other quote was, remind me one more time. Challenging your fears. Challenging your fears. So when we ask a patient to, or when I was asked to challenge my own fear of, you know what, don't tie your shoes a fourth time. Tie them only twice. Because what I would do is tie, then untie it because it didn't feel right, then retie it. So, you know, giving myself two times to retie the shoe instead of four or five or six I was taking this risk of you might lose your race because you're not doing this compulsion. That was me challenging that fear of, you know what? Maybe I will. I'm letting go of that control. Maybe I will lose this race. But it's better to lose this race than to lose control over my life and give in to OCD every time. It was nice to have that new perspective of, you know what? I'm working on the long-term goal, not this short-term goal of trying to satisfy OCD what it wants because that's white-knuckling it through life and no one should have to live life that way. Yeah, one of the things we say a lot on this platform is get comfortable being uncomfortable. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. Because when you're 
stopping at two ties, I can guarantee you, you are uncomfortable, but you're just like, I'm going to live in this space and I'm going to learn to be comfortable in this space. Let's talk about medication for a bit. I know CBT is wildly effective. I've read it's as effective as drugs like Prozac for combating anxiety and depression. It has less side effects and longer lasting benefits. In my view, that's amazing news. What is your experience with medication? And as a professional, how do you think it should be viewed in the hierarchy of treatment? So when we view therapy, we do know that for anxiety disorders specifically, that therapy alone can, for some patients, be enough. And the way I look at it is if someone is considering medication, you don't have to consider it like I'm going to be on this for the rest of my life. That That's my method. And of course, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't speak too much to that. But you can be at a good place in life and decide to go off the medication. Just always know that that door's open if you need it again, if there's a big trigger in life that you're struggling with. What I do find, though, is some patients respond perfectly to CBT ERP alone, and they don't ever need the medication. Their symptoms go down and they're doing great, which is awesome. They don't have to take that medication route, which you're right. There are more risks There's some side effects that you might have to deal with. But when we see that an individual can't, because their anxiety is so high, even do the lowest level exposure on their exposure hierarchy. So what I mean by that is if someone struggles with contamination, OCD, and they avoid doorknobs, like let's say doorknobs are very contaminated and they don't want to touch them, their lowest level exposure might be hovering their hand over a doorknob. And then maybe the the next exposure would be just tapping the doorknob with their pinky finger and then cross-contaminating by touching their hands, their lap, everything. If they can't even do that lowest level exposure that we can come up with because their anxiety is something that they can't tolerate, then we might need to consider medication at least for a while to let that anxiety come down just enough so that they can do the learned component of what they get out of CBT and ERP. But if anxiety is too high and you can't even think about utilizing new skills because you're so in your head, then the CBT isn't going to be effective. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it definitely makes sense that medicine is a tool in the kit, but it's maybe not the first tool you grab. You start with something that is less intrusive and then that's something that you can lean on if you can't fix the problem. Right. And, and like medication alone is like putting a Band-Aid on for, for anxiety disorders. I know it definitely it definitely depends on the disorder that somebody's struggling with. But for anxiety disorders, it would be like a Band-Aid if that's all you're doing. But if you are either doing CBT alone, it could work. But if if anxiety is way too high, this person is in panic, fight or flight state all the time. The combination of medication with this learned behavior is a really good fit as well. But if you're just doing the medication, you're not actually learning the skills to function and feel better and to to challenge the anxiety. That's interesting. I've never heard it phrased that way, that medication alone is not enough. I think that's a helpful way to think about it. Let's move a little bit to what I think is maybe the most challenging thing about what you do is in my mind, certain levels of anxiety and stress are necessary to perform at a high level. I think they function on the inverse U that most people are familiar with, but it's so easy to get out of balance and difficult to recognize when you're out of balance and being out of balance is different for everyone. Like we discussed earlier, do you think I'm right there? Is there such thing as good anxiety and good stress in high levels of performance? Yeah, my coach used to tell me all the time, well, if you don't have any anxiety going into a race, you should be anxious, right? Because we know that that helps with adrenaline. That helps for individuals that do endurance. It 
helps them not feel as much pain because their adrenaline response is fighting that. And so you do want to feel healthy anxiety, but you have to know where that line is that it crosses over. So unhealthy anxiety would be not being able to fall asleep the night before because you're ruminating about the competition that you have the next day or throwing up before a competition or feeling inadequate, constantly telling yourself all these negative thoughts about, I don't want to feel this way or dreading your competition. That's a a big one that hits home for me because I always wanted to make sure that I was doing my sport because I loved my sport, but it became the complete opposite for me when I was struggling at my worst with OCD. I dreaded it. I hated competition because to me that meant a million compulsions that I was going to have to do the day of the competition. And so I wanted to make sure that I got that relationship back with it uh, as, okay, no, this is something I'm doing because I love, not because I feel like a prisoner to it, if that makes sense. I think it makes perfect sense. One of the things, the conversations I had with the head coach from the University of Texas, David Pierce, is his job is to free players up. If he knows the effort's there, he's there to free players up, which to me is what you're talking about. Because old school used to be to hammer players and put them in a place where they feel stressed and they feel challenged, where I thought it was so eloquent of him to describe it that way, that his job right now is how do I get you at a place where you're just having fun? You're not thinking about outcomes, which I think that's maybe a lesson for coaches is that could be a role where you step in. You don't have to be the hard driver all the time. You can be the person that's trying to free up and maybe even make your players jovial and having fun on the field. Yeah, that's actually the next manuscript that I'm, I'm working on for publication is about different coaching styles. And I think it's so interesting because we do have coaches that bring home the hammer, right? They they will yell. And for some athletes, that's that actually might be what they need, right? They need someone that, to help them or else they are going to go off the rails or sleep in and, and do things that you wouldn't do if you were an athlete. So they need someone to help them stay in line. But if this is an athlete that's especially struggling with some perfectionism or uh, has very high standards for themselves, if their coach is yelling at them and telling them you need to snap out of it or you need to get this together, well, that's only going to blow up in their face, right? That athlete's going to crumble because they're already putting 10 times the pressure on themselves. And then the coach puts the other 10 and then it's. That's why I said, if the effort is there, right? Another name drop here. Lance Berkman is now the coach at HBU and he sat where you sat and stayed here for an hour. And we talked about motivating players because we lived in these environments where motivation was just absolutely brutal and beat you down. And to your point, It may help some players that are struggling with effort, but once the effort is there, I think it's more likely to ruin the player. I saw it ruin some of the best baseball players I've ever seen step on the field, completely ruin Mm -hmm. them. And those were players that the effort was there. So to me, when I talked to coaches, when I talked to Lance, and I was honored that he asked me, I said, Lance, if the effort's there, free them up. No one needs to be kicked in the ass if the effort's there. It's time for the pat in the ass, which is another coach Pierce quote. But anyways, a little bit of a rabbit hole there. Do you still believe, given your experience and your expertise, that toughing it out, sucking it up still has a place in high-level achievement? Oh, that's a great, powerful question. I think it depends on the context. So when it comes to being told most of my life, Callie, toughen up. Or like, you know, like as a kid, I fell down and if I started crying, my mom would be like, dust off, go play again, right? Like those things actually helped me to to be an endurance athlete, I, I would strongly believe of, of, okay, like be tough, shake it off, go play. But there's also this other side that 
there were times where I definitely didn't need to be told toughen up. Like I, I needed open arms to help me where I was because then I had to deal with unfolding this fight or flight response that would activate all the time because of that. I think you have to find the middle ground, but I, I do think that there there is maybe a tiny place to just say, hey, be tough, but in a sense of like be tough, you can do this, not be tough, you're failing. If so that how do sense. we find the middle ground? How do we find that balance? One of the conversations I had with our mutual friend, Lenny Waite, was I created this mantra for myself and it was give your emotions every bit of space they need, but nothing more. Save plenty of room for getting out and kicking life in the ass. And what I was trying to tell myself is like, give yourself that space to examine your feelings and deal with your feelings, but don't ruminate there. Don't linger there. Don't create negative energy there. You need to get out and kick life in the ass, you know, for lack of a better term. Sorry, that's not very eloquent, but that's how I wrote it. So what's your strategy? What's your advice for finding that balance? Because it's easy to say, find that middle ground, find that balance. But that is what is it? Yeah, really difficult in reality. Right. What is your thoughts there? Well, and if you ask yourself too, I, I want to reflect for a second. First, if you ask yourself, can you be tough? Like, can you be told to be tough and be a competitive athlete? When you look at competitive athletes, they're all doing tough things, right? They're either waking up at five or six in the morning to go train. Um, endurance running 26 miles at six minute pace is no easy task. And so like, you're right that, okay, well, that toughness is there if they've made it, they, they've gotten to that place already. But in order to find that middle ground, I think that's something that we still don't have a full answer to. Just like when it comes to this great mystery of, okay, well, what's a superstitious behavior and what's an OCD compulsion in sport? There is a fine line between the two. And if you cross over, you, you've got to be careful if it becomes more OCD-like. And so I think with what we know right now, it would be helpful for everybody to just know their own line of, like for me, for example, I want to make sure that I still go to races even though I feel nervous, right? Because for me, that's riding the anxiety wave instead of giving OCD and anxiety what it wants of avoiding that race because I know I'm, I might have some OCD thoughts. So that's my my form of, of still being tough. But I also know that if I am going to run a workout on tired legs because I had already done a really hard workout the day before, I know now that I can say, okay, like I need a rest day today versus before I definitely would not have been able to do that. That would have caused me a whole nother level of anxiety. So for me in that moment, being tough was actually doing the opposite of what it looks like to be tough. And that was taking a step back and having a rest day. And we see that with a lot of athletes in the Olympics that have spoken up about their mental health, that the world would maybe see that as weak, depending on who's who's looking at it. But someone that knows about mental illness and mental health, they, they would say, oh, that they're actually being tough right there. You know what I think the answer is, is have these conversations with your tribe often. And not only because it helps you become mentally tough, but if you're having these conversations consistently with your trusted circle of friends, then you can tell them when they're, when they need to toughen up. But if these conversations are only taking place once a year or never, as in my case for my entire athletic career, it's tough to create space to tell someone that. So I think that may be the answer is have these conversations more often. Make it a habit where you sit down with your close friends, where your teammates, and you talk about subjects like this, things that are bothering you on and off the field. And I think it will create space where 
you'll make progress there, but then you'll also be able to say, Callie, we talk about this. This is something you should move on from. This is not enough to ruminate on. I think that happens organically when you're having these conversations. Yeah. And and it helps people be preventative to not get to a place where they are in the middle of, of college after they've struggled with some type of disorder for the majority of their life alone. I, I think it helps if we can speak out about it to give people this message that, oh, like this is a common thing that people struggle with and there is help available instead of kind of isolating and, and dealing with it until it blows up and they have no choice but to ask for help. You cited the importance of goal setting in your journey and so having something to look forward to. Why is this so important to you? I think if I... If I didn't have a next goal, then the current goal for me, this is just how my brain works, becomes too much. So when I was still competing at Rice, a big race were on the calendar. If I didn't know that my next life goal was to run a marathon, then my brain would solely focus on this one thing and then I would shut down from too much too much anxiety. But because I had that next thing and, and wasn't thinking to myself, this is it, like everything depends on this moment, I was able to move forward. It's not necessarily the goal of let me break this time, right? Because if I live in this mindset of I have to get this fast time, I have to get it, then the pressure builds because that's the way that I'm wired, right? And so for me, it's like, okay, but what's my goal after the marathon? Well, I want to do a Spartan race again because that was a lot of fun. And so that's something that helps me know, you know what? There, There's something after this. It takes some of that pressure off to just go out and have fun to do what I love. Do you think much about proper goal setting, separating, you were kind of speaking to separating the achievement of that goal from your value or from your happiness. Do you think about whether or not this goal is a proper goal? I think about, I kind of like keep myself in check there, right? So I I, I will ask myself often, am I still enjoying this? And if the answer is yes, great. I'm going to keep fighting for that next personal record. If I am not, if this is feeling like a chore, not necessarily if my anxiety is ramping up because if that's the case, I want to challenge the anxiety. But if this is feeling like something that I'm, I'm not loving because it's become exhausting or it's it's not a priority, then I, I think I would maybe change my goal a little bit. I don't know if that answers. I think it definitely makes sense. Well, let's end it on that, enjoying what you do. How do you teach people to find enjoyment in their pursuits or how do you find enjoyment? I ask myself, a lot. Is this something that I still love? And then I I also just remind myself, I showed up to this race today because I wanted to. I didn't show up to this race because I felt like there were stakes on the line, right? And, And sometimes that's hard for a college athlete because they don't really have a choice. They have to show up to that race because it's it's paying for their school. But I think when that's the case, they have to think, okay, but what's after this? Like maybe this is one step that's helping me get to that next level of being able to run marathons instead of just doing 5Ks and 10Ks or or whatever it is for them. And so I think community helps a lot too um, with the enjoyment of it. So that like Houston has a great running community. And so for me, that makes it a lot more fun. But if I were doing all my workouts on a treadmill every day by myself alone, I definitely would have lost the fun in in my sport. So it's nice to kind of remind myself and it, it makes me feel empowered to say, oh, I'm showing up to this race because I want to. Like I'm showing up to this race because right now it's fun for me. And then I, I find I do much better that way in competitions anyways. Yeah. So check in with yourself and your larger purpose from mm-hmm. time to time or often maybe. Well, Callie, I'm so impressed with you. Thank you for oh, spending your time and your thoughts with me and 
Everyone go out and buy Callie's children's book, Anxious Annie. We didn't even talk about that. We didn't even get to it, but you've wrote, written a children's book. Do you want to share anything about the book? Or Yeah, it's actually based off my personal journey from the child's lens. And so it talks a lot about how pressure and thoughts about people pleasing can take over and, and suck the fun out of something that you once loved. So definitely check it out. It's not The message is not just good for children. I would say every adult probably needs to hear it at some point too. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Sure thing. Thanks for having me.